how does a rose flower? Professor Taki to Amuzi writes, proteins in the woody perennial work as photoreceptors to activate our internal circadian clock. And as numbers of hours of spring sunlight increases, a protein known as flowering locust tea travels from the leaves to the shoot apex where the cells are undifferentiated. And at the shoot apex, this protein triggers budding. And that is how a rose flowers. And how does the dawn break? The Australian scientist, Dr. James Johnson, writes, the Earth rotates upon its axis, and when the star at the center of our solar system is at a depression angle of six degrees, the illumination is such that large objects may be seen, and minutes later, the upper edge of the sun's disk reflects rays when coincident with the horizon, and that is how the dawn breaks. And how does a person come to know God. The 19th century theologian Louis Burkhoff writes, true conversion, conversus actualis prima, is born of a godly sorrow and issues in a life of devotion to God. It is changed, rooted in regeneration. It is affected in the conscious life of the sinner by the Spirit of God. It involves the conviction that the former direction of life was unwise and wrong and thus alters the entire course of it. And that is how a person comes to know God. What is not quite right about such descriptions? In the spring sunlight upon the rose, of the morning rays upon our planet, of the divine's work upon a human heart. What is wrong with such descriptions of the actions of heaven upon the earth? What is wrong with such descriptions of the actions of heaven upon the earth? Well, in a sense, nothing. Indeed, such definitions would undoubtedly get you an A plus in any science or theology exam. And yet sometimes, sometimes there is something so beautiful in the dance between heaven and earth, that it cannot merely be captured by scientific or systematic statements. No, to appreciate the actions of heaven upon the earth and the dance between life and the life giver, we need a story. For when it comes to new life, we long to see it. It is why God lovingly blesses us with the joy of seeing roses flowering at this time of year, and the dawn breaking every morning. And it is why God gives us Daniel chapter 4. Because in Daniel chapter 4, we see new life in story form. Indeed, we see that, that the dance of heaven and earth, a dance even more stunning than any flowering rose or, or the breaking of the dawn. For in Daniel chapter 4, we see a creature come to know his creator. And so this morning, as we study it together, I pray that you and I might not only see the beauty in it, but that you and I might see ourselves in it. And so perhaps for some of you, for the very first time, I pray that this passage might induce the moment when you flower like a rose in May, when you feel change dawning upon you as you come to the one who made you. And so, although we have already prayed, let us pray again that the Lord might help 
to bring life this morning. Let's pray. Father, the thought that we might come to know you as a lofty one. And the picture here in Daniel 4, such a beautiful one. And so give us ears that are humble, ready to hear. Give us eyes that are keen and ready to see you in all your grace and patience with us once again. And Father, we pray this for your glory and for our good. Amen. What happens in Daniel chapter 4? Well, if I may describe it at first as the, as the dry scientist and theologian that I am, uh, Daniel chapter 4 is an eight-year report about a 6th century B.C. monarch who lived in modern-day Iraq. Now, whether this monarch wrote this report in his own hand or not is unclear, but what is clear is that it is a report of his faith. Indeed, it is an autobiographical account about a king who once persecuted the faithful, who yet became a man of faith, a self-confessed conversion story about a king who was once at war with God, who made peace with him. Indeed, it is a story of a man so transformed by that peace that that he cannot stay quiet about it. For look at verse 1 with me. In the prologue, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. May all of you find the peace that I have found. And so peace was the king's purpose in writing. But what was the plot? What actually happened to him? What what beauty do we see through this story? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar's story, which starts here in verse 4, chronicles his life between 575 B.C. and 567 B.C., give or take a few years. But as I mentioned previously, is it, essentially, it is essentially an amazing description of new life seen in an eight-year dance between heaven and earth, a, a dance between a temporary king of the earth and the king of heaven. And the dance of Daniel chapter 4 has four movements in it, four stunning movements, which I want us to look at this morning in order that we might better see at the beauty of who God is and the terrible bitterness of, of who we are often and therefore what you and I must become if we too are to have a peace worth writing home about. And so in keeping with the autobiographical style and the, and the king's own voice in this passage, at first point... First movement in the dance between heaven and earth, God blessed me, and I boasted, I built it. Point one, God blessed me, and I boasted, I built it. In verse four, our story starts with the words, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now, if you are imagining uh, some kind of Wall Street banker uh, in the prime of his youth, swanning around, in a white uh, monogrammed bathrobe with a glass of champagne in his hand, perhaps, enjoying his Manhattan apartment, or then, friends, you are not thinking uh, opulent enough. Well, history tells us that, that Nebuchadnezzar the Great was perhaps the most prosperous man in all of history, for he was a king who basically marched all around the Arab-speaking world in the 6th century BC, collecting up just, just whatever he wanted. For after military victory, after victory, after victory, that the Middle East essentially became this man's shopping mall. And as a result, he greedily took everything he saw. He filled his Babylonian bedroom 
with the brightest of bling, as we saw in chapter one, and he filled his, his Babylonian boardroom with the brainiest of boys, as we saw also in chapter one. And most famously of all, he filled his backyard with the best flower beds of all time, such that the hanging gardens that he made for one of his wives became one of the wonders of the world. And yet King Nebuchadnezzar was not only a great, a great architect of his palace, but he also was the builder of the great city itself. For Babylon was probably the greatest city ever known. Indeed, in the words of the historian Tom Holland on his superb podcast, uh, the rest is history. Babylon was seen by all the people of Mesopotamia as the great fulcrum of the whole world. For the multicultural metropolis had a quarter of a million people in it. Even aside from the famous hanging gardens, the walls of Babylon were known to be one of the wonders of the world. For they were built on a stupefying scale. Some of Babylonians' walls extended for 50 miles with moats within them. Others were so wide that chariots could wield around on top of them. And so as the king surveys his boardroom and bedroom, as all the chariots go round the wall tops like little tanks of protection, perhaps the king knows subconsciously that he has it all. For in verse 5, we read, he dreams a dream. And the dream, verse 11, is of a tree that is strong and a tree that is so tall that it is, verse 11, visible to the ends of the earth and almost reaches to the heavens in verse, indeed, verse 12, its leaves are so beautiful and its fruit so abundant that all living things find shelter there. And so after a couple of run-throughs of the, of the dream, it comes of no surprise for us to learn from Daniel that he is the tree, the very royal oak himself. Verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar had more than anyone could have ever had today. For he was unlimited by any recognized national borders and unlimited by any declaration globally of human rights and unlimited by any constitutional terms. This king was a tree whose, whose reach literally knew no bounds. And yet, that the knowledge of such abundance was not primarily what God wanted him to know, was it? For the dream was not meant to prompt the obvious and a, and a confession, yes, I, I do have rather a lot of stuff. God was not hoping for a yard sale in the desert. Now, the repeated purpose of the dream is, is not to remind the king how great all his earthly blessings were, but rather for him to know how great the one who had given it to him was. For three times, we see that this is the very purpose of the dream. Look with me at verse 17. The end, that is the purpose, the point, the aim. The end is that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Indeed, exactly the same thing is seen in verse 25. What was the king to acknowledge primarily? End of verse 25, that you may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And just in case we're in any doubt, verse 32, this will come about until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Can you see, above all the sins that this king must break off, verse 27, the king must come to accept that every blessing built, every house, palace, 
wall, garden, city, kingdom built came only because God was the God of heaven and he was powerful and came only because God had given it to him. And so what is the first step in this dance? What is the first and most fundamental step for us or whether or or not we can empathize with with a home like a palace or a backyard like a hanging garden? The call of the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth, the call of God to you and I here this morning is that we recognize that everything we have comes from his sovereign and his good hand. Friends, if we are to know God at all, we must know him first as powerful giver of every blessing. That's why one of the first ways to tell a Christian family in any Hollywood movie or TV show is to watch as they say grace as they sit down for a meal together. It's why one of the first things we teach our children here at at Edgefield Church is a catechism which, which starts, who made me? God. In other words, who built all that I am? God. It's why one of the first hymns that we learn is come now fount of every blessing. And yet I wonder, I wonder if that is the song that you live by really. You may go through such rituals, but is that really the refrain of your heart? As you get in the shower and have the blessing of being woken up with warm water at the start of each day, as you, as you get into the car and have the blessing of driving to a job which gives you purpose and money, as you get home and have the blessing of being jumped on by people or pets that you love, as you get to sit down for a meal and have the blessing of delicious food and life-giving water, as you get to lie down at the end of each day and have the blessing of a comfortable bed as you lie down in that bed in silence, And as you feel your heart still beating, still blessing you with life, moment after moment after moment. Friends, when you occasionally stop and pause and realize all that you have, what is the whisper of your heart? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for blessing me. You are the sovereign one, the king who rules on high, and every gift comes from your hand. Friends, that is the right response of every human. And yet it is rarely the response of any human. Well, that was not the response of the king, was it? God blessed him, perhaps more than any other person ever. And God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and revealed himself as the most high one who gave him everything. Nebuchadnezzar heard the truth that God blessed in the same way that perhaps that has been revealed to you in the songs we sung this morning at a Thanksgiving meal, a hymn at church. And yet, verse 30, look what happens. This king who should have been brought low by yet another dream that spoke of his downfall, one year on is still walking high. Indeed, now he not only walks in the palace, verse 4, but he walks upon the roof of the palace, verse 29, and as he struts around like a peacock, and sees all that has been built from his lofty position as he stares from from his bedroom to his boardroom, from his hanging gardens to his fortified walls. As he looks lovingly at the, at the, the, the chariots all spinning around on the top of the walls like little security cameras. As he sees excessive temples and prestigious towers and sees the eight massive gates to the city of Babylon. And so all the blessings given to him by God, what is the whisper of his heart? Verse 30, key verse. Is not this great Babylon, 
which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. And so despite God's clear desire that he might know that God built his kingdom and that God gave it all to him, what is the whisper of his heart? It is, I built it. As John Piper says, the lub-dub of Nebuchadnezzar's heart was my mighty power made it, my majesty gets glory from it. My mighty power made it, my majesty gets glory from it. Friends, it is shocking. And we instantly recoil from it. And yet that is so often the whisper of our heart, isn't it? We might not say it out loud like the king, but sadly that is often what we tell ourselves and it's what we hint at to other people. Look at my house that I created. Look at my money that I saved. Look at my artwork that I fashioned. Look at my career that I built. Look at my grades that I made. Look at my children that I produced. Look at my body that I toned. Look at my church ministry that I developed. Look at my spiritual gifts that I own. Glory in my majesty for I built it all. And so like a rose foolishly believing that it flowers without the sun. And like a morning, foolishly believing that it brings light and warmth to itself each day. How quickly the earth boasts in the blessings of heaven. How quickly creatures take pride in what their creator built and how quickly you and I pretend that we have provided all this. The first step in the dance of conversion is the realization that Nebuchadnezzar is a fool and yet a fool just like me and just like you. And yet the second step is the realization that such showy moves on the dance floor of life have devastating consequences. 4.2, God cut me, but did not kill me for it. Movement one, God blessed me, but I boasted, I built it. Movement two, God cut me, but did not kill me for it. The actions of Nebuchadnezzar here in verse 30 are, are not merely discourteous, are they? They are disastrous. For God had clearly warned through his dream that the tree that sought to rival the heavens would be cut down by the heavens. And so, verse 31, look with me. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. The revelation which God warned of does come to pass. For the royal tree, which was at the, at the start of the dream, a, a tree fit for any national park advert, becomes like a tree felled in a storm. And Nebuchadnezzar now lies on a wet forest floor. Why? Well, why does the king, why does God rather cut the king down like this? We might think that it was because of his sin in verse 6, the employment of all these uh, idolatrous uh, wise men to interpret the dream instead of Daniel, 
and hence his continual refusal to accept the limitations of human wisdom, a lesson he should have learned in chapter 2. We might think it was because of his sin in verse 27 and his consistent oppression of other people, which was a lesson he should have learned from chapter 3. But the reason for the action of cutting down is revealed in its aptness for the crime. For the tree that boasted of its height needs some time being brought low. And the king who strutted in a palace filled with treasure needed some time with the animal feeding troughs. And the king who bragged of all the women that he'd bedded needed some time lying in the cold dew like an ox, a docile, castrated bull. And a king who ate vast quantities of meat on his throne needed some time eating the humble vegetables of Daniel and his friends. And the king who walked around on palace rooftop needed some time wandering in the dirt. For God always cuts down the proud. God always cuts down the proud. Which may all sound rather severe to us. Indeed, in a generation which tells us to kind of flaunt what we've got, in a generation that often tells us that our biggest problem is actually our lack of self-esteem, pride might seem the most desirable of sins. But friends, pride is the most deadly of sins. For friends, that is what the Lord Jesus himself taught, that the little children come to him, laughing and playing for their humility qualifies them for the kingdom of God. But the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus sad, for in his pride in the things of this life, he was disqualified. Friends, that's why Jesus himself was born not in a Babylonian mansion, but in a Bethlehem manger. That's why Jesus' story ended on a cross and started not in the womb of a celebrity mother, but a Mary, who, as we read early this morning, sang, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Friends, can you see the Bible's reverberating warning echoing in the pages of every page of Scripture. The proud on earth will be cut out of heaven. From the words of D.L. Moody, God sends no one away empty except those who are full in themselves. And so, friends, that is why when it comes to pride itself, we are not to see God as some kind of axe-wielding megalomaniac, but a loving surgeon who longs to perform a life-saving heart operation. For proud self-sufficiency in our heart will reject everything wonderful that God is. For as we've seen, pride will reject God as creator. As we boast, I've made it. And pride will reject God as provider. As we boast, I will sustain it. And pride will reject God as moral lawgiver, as we boast, I will make the rules. And pride will reject God as rescuer, as we boast, I do not need saving. Friends, what sin, what what evil do you hate with a passion? What sin do you consider most worthy of punishment and the most dangerous sin to your soul? The oppression of the poor? 
the violence against the unborn, the mistreatment of people of color, the flaunting of sexual immorality, the, the greed of a nation that refuses to share, the evil of a nation that, that invades another. Friends, all of those are horrific, but pride is the deadly root of them all. For pride makes us run away from God and often headlong into ever deeper sin. In 1995, a film entitled Jonathan of Arabia was broadcast on British television. And the film was all about a rising star in UK government. Jonathan Aitken was uh, the defense minister who had been tipped be to become the next prime minister. But when the film was released, all that changed. For it was revealed that Jonathan had some pretty dirty desert dealings. Jonathan had lied uh, on oath about weapons deals in the Middle East and had even arranged prostitutes for Arab businessmen. Jonathan very quickly lost his public job. He lost his home. He lost his wife. And he lost his freedom as he was sentenced to prison. And what did this great man who had fallen so far, put it all down to, well, well, amazingly, in his very honest autobiography, he writes, as I surveyed the disaster trail, respectively, all my past battles with political and media opponents, as I watched all my own Icarus-like fall from cabinet minister to convicted prisoner, I saw that this noisily enforced humiliation was probably necessary for it turned out to be an effective antidote to the poison of pride. Pride was the root of all my evils. And so two and a half millennia earlier here, God likewise reaches for the ax to cut down a man who got very proud in the same desert. God fells Nebuchadnezzar. And yet what is amazing here, what is amazing here, friends, is is that the seeming knockout blow is all part of the planned dance between the king of the earth and the king of heaven. For Nebuchadnezzar is cut down, but he's not killed. Indeed, the dream was very clear about that. Look at verse 14. The Holy One came down from heaven and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Friends, what amazing grace here. What, what patience and kindness this is to a king who, who started wars and displaced families, chapter one, who, who boasts in human wisdom, chapter two, who gets people to bow down to him and to him alone, and if not, burns them and suffocates them to death, chapter three. What patience is this? After decades and decades and decades of disregard, despite dream after dream after dream, what kindness is this? To fell the one who thought he could reach the very heavens and to strip away all the proud fruit that kept him from God and yet not kill him in the process. Friends, that is amazingly what our God is like. Indeed, friends, this is how God normally brings proud people like you and definitely proud people like me to the end of ourselves and so to him. For God lovingly uses his axe like a scalpel upon our hearts. 
It is a scalpel that often cuts and it often wounds us deeply as he brings to mind great failure and sin and loss. But he does not kill us. Rather, he cuts away that, that, that great cancer of pride as he opens our hearts to reveal all our sin and yet he allows our hearts to beat on. For in the words of Christ, a bruised weed, reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Christian, if you're anything like me, you will recall a time in your life when in his kindness, God took away all the fuel that fed the fire of your pride. And you'll recall that he did this so that you could feel your coldness and your nakedness, but also that he did this only in order that you finally sought true warmth in the clothing of the humility of Christ before it was too late for you. So friend, I, I don't claim to know all that the Lord is, is doing in your life right now. And I don't claim to know all the reasons why he made you low in this particular season of life. But if this is a season of life for you to be humbled, maybe God is stripping away things in your life so that you may draw nearer to him. Indeed, maybe for some here, the Lord has failed you recently from such great heights because he longs lovingly that you stop rejecting him in all your boasts saying, I built it. And in his gracious and in his relentless pursuit of you, maybe he brought you low yesterday so that you might come to him today. But maybe that's not you at all this morning. Indeed, maybe today you are more like the king in all his pomp, receiving this revelation for the first time, sneering at this, this needy Christianity and thinking that you might listen in a few years to come. Friend, as someone who now stands at the bottom, having seen just how much God hates pride and how his word says that he will either punish it in this life or the next, may I suggest that you climb down before you are cut down. Climb down before you're cut down. For Nebuchadnezzar longs to teach us. From his testimony this morning, he cries to us from the pages of his life and says, God blessed me, but I boasted, I built it. God cut me, but he did not kill me for it. And thirdly, God remained with me and I repented of it. God remained with me and I repented of it. What is the longest part in this story? What section takes the, the most amount of time well, if we look solely at the length of this text, we're tempted to think that perhaps the, the dream bit is the longest or maybe the interpretation of the dream bit. But the longest part of the story is, is actually the part when the king becomes a beast. The longest part of the story seen is seen in the, in the length of the king's hair, which is, becomes as long as eagle's feathers and in his fingernails, which rather disgustingly become like, like bird's claws. Indeed, if these eight years of the king's life were, were filmed, only one year would have any script to it. For between verse 33 and verse 34, there is a slow and silent seven-year dance, a dance where the king stands stubborn like an ox and refuses to say sorry. And yet what is happening? Well, what is happening throughout this whole time period well, amazingly, God is still remaining with him. 
He did one of the things that struck me for the first time about this passage in my preparations this week was how the Lord kept providing for him even in those years of silence. For between verse 33 and verse 34, the Lord provides from him over 7,500 meals. Now certainly the grass, or more literally the vegetables, which the king ate were a diet of humility, and it was still a steady diet, which again was exactly what the gracious Lord promised. For not only was the stump to remain, verse 15, but the stump was to be sustained. Did you notice that? Verse 15, let's look at it. Believe the stump of its roots in the earth and bind with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. The tree is to, is to drop down and it is not to die, but nor is it to decay. Indeed, an iron and bronze band are to protect the stump from splitting and then decomposing. For God remains with the king and even protects his kingdom. And amazingly, this dog-eat-dog world of ancient Babylon, God will ensure that the people of Babylon keep a man acting like a dog on a throne. Seven years of madness goes by, and nobody invokes the 25th Amendment. Seven years go by, and there is no assassination attempt from a deer stand. Friends, again, what, what grace and patience of God God blesses in spite of all the king's boasts. And God does not kill despite all the king's conceit. And God remains with the king even here, even in spite of the fact that it takes him seven years to repent. But again, friends, that is what our patient and kind and wonderful God is like. Indeed, that is why he sustains us, uh, us you and I, in, in the present kingdom. And it is why the end of the world has not yet come just yet. It is why the world continues on today, for God is still waiting for some of you to end this silence with him and to say sorry. For 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And finally, the king does reach repentance. The dance is slow between heaven and earth, but finally it ends with a wonderful flourish of new life. For verse 34, look there. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. The king who once looked down from his high position in the kingdom of earth now looks up from his lowly position to the kingdom of heaven. And so the king repents of all the pride in his heart. And he lets God sit on the throne of his life. For friends, that is what real repentance looks like. The dance of life is a posture of no longer leading but being led. For repentance not only perceives God as rightful ruler, but repentance permits God to rightly rule over our lives. For the king not only bows to God, but as you can see from verse 27, breaks of his sins by practicing righteousness. In New Testament terms, he lives a life of, of Christ-like righteousness because he recognizes that Christ is Lord. At the end of his autobiography, entitled Pride and Perjury, the humiliated politician Jonathan Aitken, who I mentioned previously, 
spoke of a remarkable life change after going to prison. It was an amazing transformation witnessed by all his family and his friends and all his colleagues. And how did this radical change in life come about? Well, in his own words, on the final few pages of that autobiography, Jonathan Aitken writes, none of these inward or outward changes would not have occurred if it was not for the most momentous transformation of it all. This was what I called the upward change, the change in my relationship with God. Here I, became to here I could become to tread on holy ground, for I'm still too full of awe and wonder to be able to write clearly about what has happened to me. I'm not even capable of saying when it happened. I cannot point to a blinding flash of light on a road to Damascus, nor to an instant moment of conversion. Yet somewhere along the painful road of the journey described in this book, after many months of listening, my eyes opened and I recognized that Jesus Christ was Lord and God. God blessed me, but I boasted I built it. God cut me, but did not kill me for it. God remained with me, and I repented of it. And finally this morning, God saved me, and then I sung, He built it all. God saved me, and then I sang, He built it all. Was Nebuchadnezzar really saved? Well, in light of so many uh, historical documents recording his great violence and his, his awful wickedness to many, and his worship of pagan gods, many wonder, was Nebuchadnezzar really saved right at the end of his life here? Well, for what it's worth, I, I think he was. But not because I know for sure that he was sorry enough, but rather because of what he sang about. For right at the end of our passage, the king does not find security uh, finally in the depth of his sorrow nor does he find comfort in his change, but rather, as his reason returns, as his kingdom is restored, the king sings a song about his trust in another kingdom that will last from generation to generation, and in a king who shall live forever, verse 34, and whose sovereign hand cannot be stopped, verse 35. Of what kingdom and to which king does the king sing? or whether he fully grasps the fulfillment of his song or not given, that he is 600 years out. The kingdom to which he switches his primary allegiance is to the king of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven which saves him, and the kingdom of heaven which gives him peace, is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ was the king who in the desert had all the kingdoms of this world and their glory put before him and yet worship God alone. And Christ was the king who needed no cutting down and yet was chopped down on a tree for all our pride. And Christ was the king who needed no being brought down to earth and yet spent three days under it in the very depths so that we might repent and come to him. And Christ is the king who rose from death to inherit that kingdom to which Nebuchadnezzar sings, a kingdom that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so Christ was and is the king that saves you and I and welcomes all into his kingdom if we might bow the knee to him before 
his eternal is brought in in full and before it is too late. Friends, however you have lived up until this point in your life, however deep the pride, I pray that your song would become the same as his. For as Nebuchadnezzar confesses at the end of his brief dance on earth, he is the king who has no end. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing to him, and he does according to his will, and none can say to him, what have you done? Friends, all glory be to Christ our king. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Let us pray using the words of the Lord Jesus, the King himself. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us all our depths of pride as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.